and welcome to episode 44 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Back in the late fall of 2016, my wife Sarah was listening to the TED Talks Radio Hour when she heard an extraordinary speech from a young woman named Alex Generous. Alex had been born with Asperger's Syndrome, a high-functioning form of autism. But she was misdiagnosed in early childhood with another disorder, and it wasn't until she was 11 years old that she finally got the correct diagnosis. From there, Alex has done some truly amazing things. At 17, she attended the College of Charleston, where she studied psychology, molecular biology, and neuroscience. At 19, she won the 2012 Citizen Science Biodiversity Competition for her paper on coral reefs and microbiology, which she then presented at the United Nations Convention of Biological Diversity. Subsequently, her work was published with the Columbia University's Consilience Journal of Sustainable Development. Alex's TED Talk speech on her life with Asperger's Syndrome has had over 14 million views, and she now works as a neuroscientist and tech consultant with her research devoted to creating technology to help people with autism and other developmental disorders learn to communicate effectively. She's also given speeches around the world on living with Asperger's Syndrome and autism to help people understand and gain empathy for those with developmental disabilities. And I'm very excited to say that Alex Generous is joining us on Skype for this episode of Special Parents Confidential to talk about her life and her work, as well as sharing insights into how people with autism can be helped and supported. We started off with me asking Alex to talk about her background, her late diagnosis, and how much of a difference getting the right diagnosis of Asperger's made in her ability to relate socially with other people and dealing with life situations. Getting a diagnosis enabled... um my doctors and my parents to know exactly what kind of help I would need and um, where that would be. So there's very different kinds of treatments for all different kinds of disabilities and disorders. And autism particularly has very unique symptoms that aren't seen in other mood disorders or developmental disabilities. And so it was very important that I got the right diagnosis in that sense. Right. Now, one of the, uh, one of the issues that people with Asperger's syndrome and autism have challenges with is uh, sensory overload. And you've stated before that you've had many sensory issues over the years with tastes and noises and textures. Can you describe what those issues are like for you and how you were able to, uh, if not overcome them, at least lessen the effects on your life? Um, Well, I wouldn't say that I've overcome sensory integration because I still struggle with a lot of those issues today, but it's definitely not as severe or traumatic as it was 10 years ago or even more than that. Um, So with food, I would hardly eat anything growing up. The only thing I would eat were like foods that I found that I liked and I would eat the same thing for three months and then I'd find something else that I'd like and eat the same thing for three or four months and it would just repeat. In terms of other kinds of sensory issues, it's funny because I was experiencing some of these sensory issues the other day. Um, the light in the in one of the rooms in my building was giving me a headache and it's I'm trying to figure out a way to describe this in a way that would make sense for people who don't experience it Um, I would say it's like someone who doesn't like metal the music I mean going to a metal concert it's 
that's like when it's pretty bad. There are different varying um, experiences within each sensory um, adverse situation that I'm put in. Like, for example, a light that bothered me two days ago may not bother me today because it's my mind is like that. Hmm. Do you find it's a matter of getting used to something or is it just uh, an issue that comes up uh, intermittently for no explained reason? Well, um, there are many different reasons that could set someone to be more sensitive to stimuli on certain times more so than others. For me, I find I have absolutely dreadful social anxiety. Um, Talking to you is fine because we're talking about something that I know very well. But like an example of this is um, we were going to go visit um, some friends of ours. Well, my boyfriend and I were going to go visit. And on the car ride over, I started getting incredibly sick. Um, I started just having, feeling very nauseous, like I was going to um, get sick. And he had to turn back and drive me home. And I went into that car feeling absolutely fine. And so that was probably an example of how social anxiety makes me physically ill. But as a result, it also makes me sensitive to other things around me. So it can trigger some of the sensory integration stuff. So that's not necessarily, that isn't 100% autism being the influence there. There are other factors that contribute to whether I'm feeling sensitive or not, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. So, you know, it's it's very different than from, uh, you know, some people might just have uh, nervousness over a new social situation, but this is something that is triggered by uh, a completely different mechanism or just sort of uh, just a different experience all the way around. Yes. And I hesitate saying anything absolute because people experience sensory issues differently. Uh And for me, what it's like now is I'll get in certain moods where I'm more sensitive than others. Um, But most of the time, the things that bother me always bother me. But there will be times when the reaction feels stronger than other times, if that makes any sense. Sure, sure. Okay. um, What are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about autism and you as well? And what's the truth about being on the autism spectrum and how it affects those who have it and living with it? Well, as you know, autism is a very diverse um, diagnosis and it manifests itself in different symptoms that are different among different cases of it. Um, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that socially, I don't know how to relate to people or I don't know how to connect with them. And I found that statement to be false. I feel like a lot of the social skills for people with autism who are verbal can be learned. 
And for nonverbal, it really takes a family that can be very perceptive of how they communicate. Because people communicate in more than one way. It's not just words. It's everything else, what they do, what they don't do, what they say, what they don't say. And I have found kids with autism are particularly sensitive to all aspects of communication. But for someone who may not recognize that, it just looks like they're throwing a tantrum or that they're doing something silly, when in actuality, they're probably more empathetic and perceptive than the person taking care of them is. Hmm. So, yeah, and... uh... A lot of people also uh, get the idea that when someone is nonverbal, that means they don't understand anything. But there is uh, a lot of evidence out there that points to the fact that uh, even kids who may not be able to speak, but they can still understand everything that's being said to them. And so people need to be concerned about that and what they're actually saying when they are talking to people. I think when it comes down to it, the two things that make it So it's easy to socialize and be around people of all different kinds of minds. You need to be kind and also mindful. The mindfulness is especially important because you need to be able to observe how your behavior affects other people and understand that what one person might like about you isn't necessarily the same with all people. And I've learned a lot of these intricacies because I've traveled a lot um, to different countries because I'm a dual citizen. And I also I did a lot of my research and science abroad. And there are differences. And so I think it takes a certain level of awareness to coexist with all kinds of people. And it can definitely be learned. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's wonderful. Um, now, during the years of uh, when you were misdiagnosed, because there were a number of years when you were given diagnoses that were not correct and they didn't realize that you had Asperger's, uh, you were prescribed a lot of different medications that caused adverse problems for you. But you have also said that the correct medications have helped you tremendously. Can you talk about the importance of getting the right diagnosis and the right medications and why parents should uh, stay on top of that kind of thing? Well, what makes my case slightly different is that I had a late diagnosis, but during my childhood, I also had a lot of trauma, which um, was on top of having autism naturally. And so what I went through with medications wasn't just addressing the autism, it was addressing other aspects of what I'd been through. What's interesting is that I've been on medication since I was six years old. First diagnosis was ADHD. And I've been in therapy for the majority of my life. Um, And having that ability to talk to someone that is outside of my family, outside of my friends, I think encouraged me to express myself more effectively, even though I didn't have the right diagnosis. And I'm trying to think what else is having the right diagnosis is necessary, but it doesn't mean that a child needs to know if that makes any sense. Right. Like, yes, the child should know 
appropriately for its developmental level, but they shouldn't think it's something that keeps them separate from other people. Like, oh, I have autism, so I can't go do this. Like, that's when it's not okay for people to disclose the disability to kids is if they're going to use it to teach them how it can be a crutch for them. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I, uh, I've always been concerned about that too. You know, um, how much should a child know about what's going on? Because there are many, many developmental disorders, not just autism, but uh, many kinds of developmental disorders where uh, you almost need a real advanced understanding of medical diagnosis in order to understand what's going on with it. And then to uh, make the assumption that uh, a three or four or even five or six year old child would be able to understand all that is uh, I think a, a awful uh, expecting a lot. Let's just say. Exactly. And the truth is, is nobody except for, clinicians who are certified in giving diagnoses are qualified to assign those labels and use them casually. Mm -hmm. And one of the mistakes I see a lot of parents and children make is identifying with a diagnosis, which if it helps, that's great. But a lot of times what I find is when an example of this is if a parent sees their kid with autism doing something embarrassing and they're around new people, the mom will be like, oh, don't worry about them. They have autism. This is normal, you know, like and personally, I think that's an insult to the child to have any behavior that they display be because of autism. And that's not necessarily the case. Um People can be many things. And like, for example, my linguistic skills aren't characteristic of autism. Mm -hmm. Does that mean I don't have autism? No, that doesn't. That's not what it means. It just means that there are different levels to people at all ages. And you can't limit someone because of a diagnosis, but you shouldn't deny the diagnosis either. But it's not something you should use to socially bond with other parents or as excuses for bad behavior. Right. Right. And also, I think uh, it, it, the parents can fall into a trap of thinking that their child is always going to be this way. When I, I personally know of several examples of kids who have uh, improved, if you want to call it improvement, or have just been able to make gains in communication and social behaviors that they didn't have originally and and people forget that even kids who are what are would be called for lack of a better term neurotypical there are a lot of kids who also have social issues that they learn to overcome and grow yes. and i think uh, a kid with a developmental disability or a social disability or even a physical disability over the years some can make improvements Definitely they can. And one thing to keep in mind, just to give understanding to all different feelings towards autism, is some people do experience it tragically. They experience it in a way that's very adverse. And a lot of times that happens because of their experiences of other people in regard to the disorder, rather than um, it being tragically on its own. And I think there's a gap between how parents perceive 
people with autism and then the actual autism itself. I don't know if that makes any sense, mm -hmm. but it did in my head. <laughs> right. No, it does. It does. It really does. That's great. Now, um, you've done a lot of research into developing methods and technologies to help people with autism to be able to communicate more effectively. What are some of the tools that you think work, works best that parents could use to help their kids who are on the spectrum? Well, the first thing is you have to take this mindset that not one thing doesn't fix everything. Um, one of the the coolest ways that I have that have helped me is dividing um, dividing success into three categories: success with family, success with school, and success with like peers. Um, and each of those categories require different skills. Like, for example, to be able to do well in school, it requires a certain level of organization. But if your kid keeps forgetting their homework, what do you need to do to get them to succeed in school? You need to develop a routine where they don't forget things and they don't lose things and help enforce it. And for other sections, really, that's not something that applies to everyone. But my point is, is you need to assess each case individually and identify the challenges and the strengths and go about addressing them in a very systematic and consistent way. Yeah, that sounds great. That's a lot. That's a lot the way uh, any uh, parent would work with a child too. It's just, you have well, to, yeah, go ahead. You can say that, but at the same time, you see many different kinds of parents you see. So it's, you would think it's more common, but it isn't as common as one would think just because every situation's different. Right. Now, you sometimes, you've written that sometimes that conflicts can occur for parents who are frustrated over lack of progress in helping their kids and that outside opinions from other people who don't understand the struggles that the children on the spectrum are going through can also add a lot of stress. What would you tell parents who are confused and unsure about whether they're getting the best help for their kids? Well, one thing... I would suggest is assessing that the people are treating their child are stable people because whether we like to believe it or not, um, there are many different kinds of people who walk this earth and many of them choose to become clinicians, but it doesn't mean they're the right fit for the child. So the biggest rookie mistake I see in people getting treatment is when they've they assume that a therapist's word is godly if it's the first therapist they've ever seen. And that if what they said didn't work, then that means all therapists are bad, that are all speech pathologists are bad, or that all psychiatrists are bad. Um, and that's not really the case. And the best metaphor I like to use is when you look for treatment for your child, look, you need to interview them like they're like you're looking for a babysitter. Would you want this person in your house full time? Would you want this person? Do you trust their judgment? Um, have you checked that they have medical licenses appropriate to treat and they have the proper experiences? And another mistake in terms is not vaccinating children. Um, basically, Dr. Andrew Wakefield was the scientist or used to be scientist before he had his license revoked that made the correlation that vaccines cause autism. 
But what they found out is when they tried to replicate the studies, it didn't hold up, meaning the correlation didn't exist in other studies. And so what they found is that he falsified his data. And as a result, um, they had to revoke his license, revoke the paper, but the damage had already been done at that point. And so what happened is you have outbreaks of all these deadly diseases and you also have an increase of children being sickly. I don't know if you know what I mean by that. Like, you know how you see some children and they appear very fragile. Right. Um, I'm not saying that that's the only source of it, but I'm saying that misinformation can be very harmful. Right. So looking at your sources, not listening to other parents on what they post on Facebook and taking it like as it's word is absolutely true. Um, double checking things to make sure it's right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's very important for people trying to get the right kind of help. Yeah, that and probably making sure that you run everything by your family physician or at least your child's pediatrician, too, when it comes to making decisions like that. And I think it's hard for families, especially because everybody has an opinion, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like when the only metaphor is um, one of my best friends recently had a child and when she was pregnant, like all these random family members that she hadn't talked to in years is started talking to her and giving her all this advice and stuff. And it's some of it was absolutely ridiculous. And it's kind of like there's a lot of information going in that it can become overwhelming for people in these situations. And so I think it's important for them to decide what is the best route going forward. Yep. That's great. I always kind of use from my own criteria when it comes to especially like medical advice or things like that, you know, uh, well, uh, you know, where which uh, which medical school did you get your degree from? You know, (laughs) because that's always it. I will only you know, when when I want medical advice, I'll ask a a medical doctor or uh, perhaps an osteopath, you know, and when I want advice on something else, I'll ask an expert in that field. Exactly. And there's different ways to like tell people that, oh, I appreciate the advice. I'll look into it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And by saying a statement like that, you aren't dismissing what they said to you, but at the same time, you're stopping them from becoming preachy. Right. So you can actually figure out what's best for you or not. There's never a reason to be rude, but you definitely have to have firm boundaries and be assertive with others. Yep. Yep. Definitely. Now, often when therapists and neurologists talk about different disorders of the brain, they tend to categorize them as entirely separate disorders with their own set of causes and symptoms. But you've you've stated in uh, certain areas that you think that many brain disorders can be related and even come from similar causes. Are you working in research into that area now? Currently, I am not, but I keep up with it on um, with friends who are working in research labs regarding that. Um, I actually know this excellent PhD student at UC Berkeley who's working on a thesis regarding this idea of neurodiversity. But to explain how I started interpreting the literature is I'm finding that, and it's all very dense, as you know, when you read science journals, is that 
Do you know what phrenology is? Um, I uh, sort of familiar with it. It's uh, it's this Victorian um, method of neuroscience, which is completely false, by the way. Right, it's shown yeah. not to be true. Right. But it's this idea that certain things come from somewhere like this part of the brain controls how much fun you have or mm-hmm. this part of the brain controls like your speech stuff. And yeah, different parts may do different things, mm-hmm. but one part may do many things. Okay. So as I've understand the brain from doing research at Tufts at medical university, of South Carolina and other places, is that it's not a one-to-one ratio. Like the same um, receptor may affect different things in different ways, mm-hmm. but it doesn't affect just one thing, if that makes sense. Right. And I think there's a lot of crossover with certain categories of disease or disabilities or disorders of any kind, mm-hmm. mainly because... They may utilize different aspects of the brain and there might be crossover between the different kinds of diagnoses. So phrenology is not the way to go because mm-hmm. it really it limits the intellectual integrity of what our brain really does. And neuroscience today really shows us that it's a lot more complex than that. But oftentimes you'll hear people exciting studies saying like, oh, yeah, this nerve does this. Or, and it's not as simple as that. It's like, yeah, this nerve increases the likelihood that this would happen. And it also does this to that. So it's it, – I guess what I'm hoping people will do is we'll switch to a mindset that's more scientifically accurate. Um, and there are a lot other – different aspects beyond the brain that can affect behavior, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. So recently you announced on your website that you're moving into a new field of work that you're very interested in pursuing. Can you talk about some of what that work is, or if not possibly hint as to where you're headed and where you're hoping hoping to go now? Yes, of course. Um, I'm in the process of um, building a business Mm -hmm. that, um, will be launched at the end of this year. And I also am working on a book with a really wonderful group of people in New York City. And those are my two main projects right now. And the absolute details of the projects, I can't tell as of right now. Okay. But I wish I, I wish I could, (laughs) but I'm not technically supposed to, okay. but I'm continuing to do speaking engagements and all of that and connect with people around the world on a deeper level. Like the next month, I two months from now, I'll be going to London to speak at a conference and I have other conferences randomly booked. And so my goals in the short term is continue connecting with other people who encounter um difficulties with autism and connecting with them and talking to them and helping them. That's always been what I'm passionate about is helping people. So that is something that will never change, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. 
Yeah. That's great. Well, hopefully uh, we'll uh, obviously be looking forward to finding out what your next projects will be. And uh, we'll make sure that people uh, are able to connect with you uh, with the proper links here uh, when I post this podcast episode on uh, Special Parents Confidential's website. Thank you. Sure. Now, um, one last question, I think, before we go here. Um, What would you say to parents who might just be beginning their journey with a child on the spectrum and they're just not sure what to do or what the future is going to be for their child? What what could you uh, tell them to, you know, uh, let them know that uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, journey, but they can make it? I would say knowledge is power because it creates wisdom and insight on that will impact your decisions moving forward. And so when you first get a diagnosis, I think it's important to learn everything you can about it and learn the different treatment options um, and find support from people in your community wherever you feel comfortable. Like, for example, like church or community center or any of that, um, Having the parents need support through that just as much as the children do. And oftentimes, I think parents need to see therapists as they're going through treatment with their child um, to help keep them grounded and steady so that they make the right decisions. And I think just reading whatever you can that comes from good sources regarding autism and different treatments and researching what's available in your local community is the greatest first step that you can take. That's wonderful. I like the fact that you mentioned therapy for the parents, too, because sometimes it's uh, hard to uh, realize just how stressful things can get when you're uh, working with a child who has uh, special needs and developmental disabilities, that things can get stressful personally for the parents too. And being able to uh, talk over things with a therapist and get some counseling, I think can sometimes help a lot. It does help a lot because it's a professional source that is outside of your friends and family and will not imply judgment and will keep everything confidential, which I think It's like having a diary, but in human form. Well, thank you so much, Alex. I really appreciate this. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. To find out more about Alex Generous and her work, visit the Special Parents Confidential website, where we have links posted for you to follow. You can also watch her TED Talk speech. A quick reminder, be sure to share this episode of Special Parents Confidential with everyone you know. We make it easy for you with the social media buttons on our website. By sharing these episodes, you're helping us to be able to continue this podcast. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.